and welcome to week three of our study of the afterlife. The last two weeks were challenging as we considered the reality of hell. It's our hope and prayer that you came away from those lessons, not fearful or discouraged, but motivated to share the good news of Jesus with those you know and love. This week will feel like a breath of fresh air as Kay Warren begins teaching us what the Bible says about heaven. If the last two weeks felt like bad news getting worse, this week is the good news, actually the great news about the home in heaven that Jesus has been preparing for us. In fact, one of the life change objectives for this lesson is joy. Let's join Kay now for the first half of Afterlife Part Two. I wanna to talk to you about a goal for your life that will change everything about your life. This is not one of those personal goals that we set and strive for, hoping that we'll be able to reach them. I wanna to talk to you about one goal that you can be certain you will reach. This single goal is so important that just knowing we will reach it can change everything for you. That goal is a place called heaven. Now don't tune me out, please, because we all have three boxes that we put things in as we set priorities, urgent, not urgent, and after I'm dead. And since heaven is in that third box, we all tend not to give it very much attention. And that's a big mistake because there is no greater truth to build your life on, to reduce your anxieties, to motivate you in genuine greatness than this goal of heaven. Listen to what the Apostle Paul had to say about this goal in his life. Philippians 3.14, Paul says, I strain to reach the end of the race and receive the prize for which God, through Christ Jesus, is calling us up to heaven. The goal you should have your eye on, Paul Hi, says, is heaven. He compared it to a finish line. line. Paul often compared life to a race. As we what if I said to you, I want you to run a race, but I'm not going to tell you when or where the finish line is. That would be pretty strange. One of two things happens when we aren't sure of the finish line. This week we run like a frantic race. We run as fast as we can all of the, the time, just in case heaven. the finish line is around the, the next corner. Like or we run worse, a frustrated race. This week Since we don't know where we're headed, we slow down, maybe even stop, and hope that Jesus someone will come along to give directions. Us. We fact, need finish lines, and the hope and reward of heaven is the ultimate finish line of life. Not that there's anything wrong with having other goals, for business or family or school. We should have goals. We need them in our lives. But if you see them as the ultimate finish line, you'll be deeply disappointed. They're just not enough. You and I need the hope of heaven. We're all born with an inner sense of what we're going to talk about in this study. We have an intuition that there is something greater and grander, that we were made for more than life on this earth. God has created men and women with a sense that this life is not all there is. The Bible says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has also set eternity in the human heart. All of us know instinctively that the grave is not our final destiny. In the last session, we explored the afterlife and what it will be like for unbelievers. Many questions might remain about the specifics of the afterlife for believers. For instance, where is heaven? Who will be in heaven? How will I be judged as a believer? What will heaven be like? And how can heaven affect my life now? Well, let's just dig in. Where is heaven? If I told you that you didn't have to be afraid of giving a wrong answer, and then I asked you to point to heaven, where would you point? Most people would point up. And that's good because heaven is up. The word heaven has always had the connotation of up. In Psalm 123.1, it says, Lord, I look up to you 
up to heaven where you rule. This grows out of the three ways that the word was used in the Old Testament times. In the Old Testament, heaven is spoken of figuratively in terms of layers of sky. So the heavens are where the birds fly, the trees breathe, and the rain falls. And this was referred to as the first heaven. But the heavens are also a little higher up where the moon and the stars move in their orbits. This was referred to as the second heaven. And the third heaven, or the highest heaven, was said to be where God dwells in a special way. That third heaven is not just up in the sense that it's out there somewhere beyond the orbit of Pluto. The Bible does not tell us an exact location of heaven. It indicates that it's a place above anything we now know. It's higher than what we now experience, more than we can imagine, beyond all of the pain and confusion of this world. The fact that heaven is God's dwelling place leads to the second picture that the Bible gives us of where heaven is, a picture that is deeply emotional. Heaven is home. The word home is such a powerful word. There is no more important place. Although you may have grown up in a home that was far from what it should have been, every one of us has in our minds a picture of an idyllic home. It's a picture of deep personal fulfillment, unshakable security, rich and meaningful relationships, and lasting joy. Well, heaven is God's dwelling place, and it's the final dwelling place for believers. Revelation 21.3 says, I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, Look, the home of God is now among his people. He will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. One of the names given to heaven is the heavenly city. Hebrews eleven sixteen says, But they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a heavenly city for them. Some stories are worth repeating. One of those is this experience of a husband and wife returning from the mission field that has made its way into many sermons and emails and has even been written into a song by Stephen Curtis Chapman. An old missionary couple had been working in Africa and were returning to New York to retire. Their health was broken. They were defeated, discouraged, and afraid. When they went down to the wharf to board the ship, they discovered that they were booked on the same ship as President Teddy Roosevelt, who was returning from one of his big game hunting expeditions. When they boarded the ship, no one paid any attention to them. They watched the tremendous fanfare that accompanied the president's arrival with passengers stationing themselves at vantage points to catch a glimpse of this great man. As the ship moved across the ocean, the old missionary said to his wife, something is wrong. Why should we have given our lives in faithful service for God all these many years and have no one care a thing about us? Here this man comes back from a hunting trip and everybody makes much over him, but nobody gives two hoots about us. His wife replied, dear, you shouldn't feel that way. But he said, I can't help it. It doesn't seem right. When the ship docked in New York, a band was waiting to greet the president. The mayor and other dignitaries were there. The papers were full of the president's arrival. No one noticed this missionary couple. They slipped off the ship and found a cheap flat on the east side, hoping the next day to see what they could do to make a living in the city. That night, the man's spirit just broke. He said to his wife, I can't take this. God is not treating us fairly. His wife replied, why don't you go in the bedroom 
and talked to the Lord about the whole thing. A short time later, he came out from the bedroom, but now his face was completely different. His wife asked, what happened? The Lord settled it with me, he said. I told him how bitter I was that the president should receive this tremendous homecoming when no one met us as we returned home. And when I finished, it seemed as though the Lord put his hand on my shoulder and simply said, but you're not home yet. Heaven is home, a home far above and beyond anything that we can imagine on this earth. Even on our best days, there's something in all of us that knows that this world is not all there is, that we are longing and waiting to be home. I love what Vance Havner said in his later years about our longing for heaven. He said, I'm homesick for heaven. It's the hope of dying that has kept me alive this long. Well, who will be in heaven? In Hebrews 12, 22 to 23, we're told of many inhabitants, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands of angels gathered together with joy. You have come to the meeting of God's firstborn children whose names are written in heaven. You have come to God, the judge of all people, and to the spirits of good people who have been made perfect. This passage tells us that in heaven, we will encounter God. In fact, heaven is called the city of the living God. We were gonna encounter angels, thousands and thousands of angels. We'll see believers in Jesus Christ, those whose names are written in heaven, and Old Testament believers, those that the Bible there refers to as the spirits of good people who have been made perfect. So let's take a moment here to be clear about a couple of ideas. First, really important, notice that people and angels are different. You don't become an angel when you die. Angels and people have always been separate creations of God, and they are listed separately in this passage. Second, believers from both New Testament times and from Old Testament times will also be in heaven. Maybe you'll remember from our study of salvation that we're all there in heaven because of what Jesus did for us on the cross. But those in the Old Testament had faith in a Messiah who they knew would one day come. And all who have lived after Jesus have faith in that same Messiah, the Son of God, who gave his life on a cross. And as we saw in the last study, the only people who will spend eternity with God are those who choose him in this life. And God wants everyone to hear and know about salvation. Romans 10:9 says that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Just think of it. If you tell someone the good news of Jesus' love for him or her, you're not only offering a strength for life in this world, you are showing them the way to eternal life. We have the privilege of giving them God's invitation to join the angels, the believers from the Old Testament, and those of us who accepted the message of Jesus' death on the cross for our sins in that heavenly city, heaven. Well, let's take a closer look at some of the other questions that come up about who's going to be in heaven. So the question that I've heard so many times is, will babies or children who die go to heaven? And I wanna tell you that the answer to that is yes. Although they are not old enough to be saved, they are kept safe by God's grace. A child or someone who is mentally handicapped who dies before reaching the age that they can understand their sin and need for Christ will not be held accountable for what they cannot understand. That would violate both God's justice and God's grace. Although the Bible does not directly answer this question, we can see from two specific indications that the answer is indeed yes. First of all, God is just, 
and righteous in everything he does. Psalm 145, 17. The Lord is righteous in all his ways and loving toward all he has made. He will not make a mistake in any of his judgments. We make mistakes all the time and misjudge people, but God never does. We can be confident he will judge righteously and lovingly. The second is we have a concrete example in 2 Samuel 12 of where King David says that he believes he will be reunited with his little baby who had died. Well, how will I be judged as a believer? Those of you who are very test-oriented are likely thinking, this is one final exam that I want to make sure I pass with flying colors. Well, the Bible tells us of two times of judgment at the end of the world. One is called the Great White Throne Judgment. And at this judgment, those who do not believe in Christ will hear their final judgment and sentencing of separation from God. But those who trust in Christ will not face this judgment. You need to hear that. Because the picture that some of us have in our minds is not a true biblical picture. You know the one I'm talking about. You're in a line with tens of thousands of people behind you, and the line is going as far as you can see. And in front of you are the pearly gates and St. Peter's there with a clipboard checking off the, the uh, qualifications of all those as they get close. And as you get closer and closer to the front of the line, you're saying to yourself, I hope my name is on that list. I hope my name is on that list. Listen, what I'm about to say to you is something you need to hear. Because of what Jesus has done for us, you won't even be in that line. Not only are you not on St. Peter's clipboard in that line, you won't be in the line. The moment you asked Christ to be your savior, that was settled forever. You have already passed from death into life. Listen to what Jesus promises in John 5. I'm telling you the truth. Those who hear my words and believe in him who sent me have eternal life. They will not be judged, but have already passed from death to life. There is, however, a judgment for believers that's different from that great white throne judgment, and it's called the Bema judgment. In speaking to the believers in Corinth, Paul writes this in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that each one may receive what is due him for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Well, Bema is the Greek word translated judgment seat in these verses. So would you circle the word all in 2 Corinthians 5.10? That means me, and that means you, and every believer who has ever lived. This is not a judgment as to whether or not you will be in heaven for eternity. This judgment is only all about rewards or the loss of rewards. I read a great illustration of this judgment seat um, that took place in a third grade elementary school class. It's the last day of school and the parents had joined the children and the teacher in the classroom. It was also awards day, the day that each child would be given an award for the learning that they had accomplished and the character they had exhibited during that year. Mrs. Rhodes, the teacher, pulled out a stool and put it in front of her class. Each child would come one by one to sit on that chair to receive their rewards from the teacher. As she placed the stool, Mrs. Rhodes said, this is our awards chair. Actually, it's the same chair that was our test chair for your children's final oral test last week. But today, it's the awards chair. What a picture of this moment when we stand before Jesus. We will be tested in the presence of Jesus. And what we have built into our life that does not last will be lost. Our works will be tested. And then in the presence of all, 
we will be rewarded for what we have done, for what does last. And just as every child in that class made their way to that chair on that day, every one of us will be rewarded for our faith. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 to 15 gives the clearest description of the nature of the Bema judgment, how this judgment for believers works. By the grace God has given me, I laid a foundation as a wise builder and someone else is building on it. But each one should build with care for no one can lay a foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it is burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet will be saved, even though only as one escaping the flames. Write down with me three truths that we see in this passage, and then I'd like to walk through them with you. First, what we've built into our lives that will last will be rewarded. Second, what we've built into our lives that will not last will be lost. And third, whatever our rewards or loss, our salvation is secure. This judgment is pictured as a fire, a fire that tests the quality of what you and I have built into our lives. Some things in our lives are like wood, hay, or straw. They may look nice, even impressive, but they will not stand the test of eternity. There are a lot of things in this world that will not last beyond this world. Would you agree with that? Absolutely. You have a lot of things that won't last even this year. We all need a house over our head and certain things to survive, but if I spend all of my time and energy in getting a bigger house or more and more things, all I'm doing is adding wood to the bonfire as I head into eternity. In the end, we will see what is truly important. In the end, we will be rewarded for what we've built into and through our lives that lasts. You may remember that moving scene from the Steven Spielberg movie, Schindler's List. Oscar Schindler, the Polish businessman who had used a portion of his fortune to have the names of Jews put onto a work list that would prevent their being sent to a concentration camp, faces those who had escaped certain death because of his actions. And he's, as he looks into their faces, he has a moment of clarity, of seeing what is really valuable. In a conversation with his Jewish friend, Itzhak Stern, about what could have been, he says, why didn't I save more? Why did I buy a new car? I could have saved 10 more lives. Why did I want that money for myself? I could have saved more. He was asking the question that all of us will ask in the end. Why didn't I invest more of my life in that which is truly important? The good news is you don't have to wait until you get to heaven to ask that question. You can start asking now. God doesn't want us to be motivated by the guilt of what we haven't done. The motivation is in the reward, in what our lives can count for. And there will be genuine and unimaginable rewards. 1 Corinthians 3 calls them gold, silver, and precious stones. People who've come to know Christ, character that has been developed, sacrifices that have been made, prayers that have been prayed, gold, silver, and precious stones that will last for eternity. 1 Corinthians 4, 5, 
says, Therefore judge nothing before the appointed time. Wait until the Lord comes. He will bring to light what is hidden in darkness and will expose the motives of men's hearts. At that time, each will receive his praise from God. So let's take a little bit closer look at this because we're told in scripture that believers will be rewarded based on three specific things. First of all, on our actions. Matthew 16, 27 says, For the Son of Man is going to come in his Father's glory with his angels, and then he will reward each person according to what he has done. We're also going to be rewarded based on our thoughts. Jeremiah 17, 10 says, I, the Lord, search the heart and examine the mind to reward each person according to their conduct, according to what their deeds deserve. We will also be rewarded according to our words. Matthew 12, 36 says, But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. Every time I act in a Christ-like way, that has eternal impact. Every time I think in a Christ-like way, that has eternal impact. Every time I speak in a Christ-like way, that has eternal impact. And there will be a day when Jesus looks us in the eye and says to us for each faithful act, thought, and word, well done. I hope the joy is already beginning to rise up inside you. As followers of Jesus, this is what we are looking forward to. If you're like me, this lesson also served as an important reminder. Everything about our lives matters. It doesn't just matter today and for the immediate future. The impact of the way we act, the things we think about, and the things we do and say in this life will echo in eternity. It's a powerful challenge to be mindful and intentional every day with every opportunity. Have a great small group discussion. 